Chapter Thirty of Women in Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Thirty. Snowed up. When Ursula and Birkin were gone. Gudrun felt herself free in her contest with Gerald. As they grew more used to each other, he seemed to press upon her more and more. At first she could manage him, so that her own will was always left free. But very soon he began to ignore her female tactics. He dropped his respect for her whims and her privacies. He began to exert his own will blindly without submitting to hers. Already a vital conflict had set in which frightened them both. But he was alone, whilst already she had begun to cast round for external resource. When Ursula had gone, Gudrun felt her own existence had become stark and elemental. She went and crouched alone in her bedroom, looking out of the window at the big flashing stars. In front was the faint shadow of the mountain knot. That was the pivot. She felt strange and inevitable, as if she were centred upon the pivot of all existence. There was no further reality. Presently Gerald opened the door. She knew he would not be long before he came. She was rarely alone. He pressed upon her like a frost, deadening her. "'Are you alone in the dark?' he said. And she could tell by his tone he resented it. He resented this isolation she had drawn round herself. Yet, feeling static and inevitable, she was kind towards him. "'Would you like to light the candle?' she asked. He did not answer, but came and stood behind her in the darkness. "'Look,' she said, "'at that lovely star up there. Do you know its name?' He crouched beside her to look through the low window. "'No,' he said. "'It is very fine. "'Isn't it beautiful? Do you notice how it darts different coloured fires. It flashes really superbly. They remained in silence. With a mute, heavy gesture, she put her hand on his knee and took his hand. "'Are you regretting, Ursula?' he asked. "'No, not at all,' she said. Then, in a slow mood, she asked, "'How much do you love me?' He stiffened himself further against her. "'How much do you think I do?' he asked. "'I don't know,' she replied. "'But what is your opinion?' he asked. There was a pause. At length, in the darkness, came her voice, hard and indifferent. "'Very little indeed,' she said, coldly, almost flippant. His heart went icy at the sound of her voice. 
"'Why don't I love you?' he asked, as if admitting the truth of her accusation, yet hating her for it. "'I don't know why you don't. I've been good to you. You were in a fearful state when you came to me.' Her heart was beating to suffocate her, yet she was strong and unrelenting. "'When was I in a fearful state?' he asked. "'When you first came to me, I had to take pity on you. But it was never love.' It was that statement, it was never love, which sounded in his ears with madness. "'I must you repeat it so often that there is no love!' he said in a voice strangled with rage. "'Well, you don't think you love, do you?' she asked. He was silent with cold passion of anger. "'You don't think you can love me, do you?' she repeated, almost with a sneer. "'No,' he said. "'You know you never have loved me, don't you?' "'I don't know what you mean by the word love.' he replied. "'Yes, you do. You know all right that you have never loved me. Have you, do you think?' "'No,' he said, prompted by some barren spirit of truthfulness and obstinacy. "'And you never will love me,' she said finally. "'Will you?' There was a diabolic coldness in her, too much to bear. No, he said. Then, she replied, what have you against me? He was silent in cold, frightened rage and despair. If only I could kill her! His heart was whispering repeatedly. If only I could kill her, I should be free. It seemed to him that death was the only severing of this Gordian knot. Why do you torture me? he said. She flung her arms round his neck. Ah, oh, I don't want to torture you, she said pityingly, as if she were comforting a child. The impertinence made his veins go cold. He was insensible. She held her arms round his neck in a triumph of pity. And her pity for him was as cold as stone. Its deepest motive was hate of him and fear of his power over her, which she must always counterfoil. "'Say you love me,' she pleaded. "'Say you will love me for ever. "'Won't you? Won't you?' "'But it was her voice only that coaxed him. "'Her senses were entirely apart from him, "'cold and destructive of him. "'It was her overbearing will that insisted.' "'Won't you say you'll love me always?' she coaxed. "'Say it, even if it isn't true. "'Say it, Gerald, do.' 
I will love you always, he repeated, in real agony, forcing the words out. She gave him a quick kiss. Fancy your actually having said it, she said, with a touch of raillery. He stood as if he had been beaten. Try to love me a little more, and to want me a little less, she said, in a half-contemptuous, half-coaxing tone. The darkness seemed to be swaying in waves across his mind, great waves of darkness plunging across his mind. It seemed to him he was degraded at the very quick, made of no account. "'You mean you don't want me?' he said. "'You are so insistent, and there is so little grace in you, so little fineness. You are so crude. You break me. You only waste me. It is horrible to me.' "'Horrible to you?' he repeated. "'Yes. Don't you think I might have a room to myself, now Ursula has gone?' You can say you want a dressing-room. You do as you like. You can leave altogether if you like, he managed to articulate. Yes, I know that, she replied. So can you. You can leave me whenever you like, without notice even. The great tides of darkness were swinging across his mind. He could hardly stand upright. A terrible weariness overcame him. He felt he must lie on the floor. Dropping off his clothes, he got into bed, and lay like a man suddenly overcome by drunkenness, the darkness lifting and plunging, as if he were lying on a black, giddy sea. He lay still in this strange, horrific reeling for some time purely unconscious. At length she slipped from her own bed and came over to him. He remained rigid, his back to her. He was all but unconscious. She put her arms round his terrifying, insentient body, and laid her cheek against his hard shoulder. "'Gerald!' she whispered. "'Gerald!' There was no change in him. She caught him against her. She pressed her breasts against his shoulders. She kissed his shoulder through the sleeping jacket. Her mind wandered over his rigid, unliving body. She was bewildered and insistent. Only her will was set for him to speak to her. "'Gerald, my dear!' she whispered, bending over him, kissing his ear. Her warm breath, playing, flying rhythmically over his ear, seemed to relax the tension. She could feel his body gradually relaxing a little, losing its terrifying, unnatural rigidity. Her hands clutched his limbs, his muscles, going over him spasmodically. The hot blood began to flow again through his veins. 
his limbs relaxed. "'Turn round to me,' she whispered, forlorn with insistence and triumph. So, at last, he was given again warm and flexible. He turned and gathered her in his arms, and feeling her soft against him, so perfectly and wondrously soft and recipient, his arms tightened on her. She was as if crushed, powerless in him. His brain seemed hard and invincible now, like a jewel. There was no resisting him. His passion was awful to her, tense and ghastly and impersonal, like a destruction, ultimate. She felt it would kill her. She was being killed. "'My God! My God!' she cried in anguish in his embrace, feeling her life being killed within her. And when he was kissing her, soothing her, her breath came slowly, as if she were really spent, dying. "'Shall I die? Shall I die?' she repeated to herself. And in the night, and in him, there was no answer to the question. And yet, next day, the fragment of her which was not destroyed remained intact and hostile. She did not go away. She remained to finish the holiday, admitting nothing. He scarcely ever left her alone, but followed her like a shadow. He was like a doom upon her, a continual thou shalt, thou shalt not. Sometimes it was he who seemed strongest, whilst she was almost gone, creeping near the earth like a spent wind. Sometimes it was the reverse. But always it was this eternal seesaw, one destroyed that the other might exist, one ratified because the other was nulled. In the end, she said to herself, I shall go away from him. I can be free of her, he said to himself in his paroxysms of suffering and he set himself to be free. He even prepared to go away, to leave her in the lurch, but for the first time there was a flaw in his will. "'Where shall I go?' he asked himself. "'Can't you be self-sufficient?' he replied to himself, putting himself upon his pride. "'Self-sufficient!' he repeated. It seemed to him that Gudrun was sufficient unto herself, closed round and completed like a thing in a case. In the calm, static reason of his soul he recognised this, and admitted it was her right to be closed round upon herself, self-complete, without desire. He realised it, he admitted it. It only needed one last effort on his own part to win for himself the same completeness. He knew that it only needed one convulsion of his will 
for him to be able to turn upon himself also, to close upon himself as a stone fixes upon itself and is impervious, self-completed, a thing isolated. This knowledge threw him into a terrible chaos, because, however much he might mentally will to be immune and self-complete, the desire for this state was lacking, and he could not create it. He could see that, to exist at all, he must be perfectly free of Gudrun, leave her if she wanted to be left, demand nothing of her, have no claim upon her. But then, to have no claim upon her, he must stand by himself, in sheer nothingness, and his brain turned to naught at the idea. It was a state of nothingness. On the other hand, he might give in and fawn to her. Or finally, he might kill her. Or he might become just indifferent, purposeless dissipated, momentaneous. But his nature was too serious, not gay enough or subtle enough for mocking licentiousness. A strange rent had been torn in him, like a victim that is torn open and given to the heavens, so he had been torn apart and given to Gudrun. How should he close again? This wound, this strange, infinitely sensitive opening of his soul, where he was exposed like an open flower to all the universe, and in which he was given to his complement, the other, the unknown. This wound, this disclosure, this unfolding of his own covering, leaving him incomplete, limited, unfinished, like an open flower under the sky. This was his cruelest joy. Why, then, should he forego it? Why should he close up and become impervious, immune, like a partial thing in a sheath, when he had broken forth like a seed that has germinated, to issue forth in being, embracing the unrealised heavens. He would keep the unfinished bliss of his own yearning, even through the torture she inflicted upon him. A strange obstinacy possessed him. He would not go away from her, whatever she said or did. A strange, deathly yearning carried him along with her. She was the determinating influence of his very being, though she treated him with contempt, repeated rebuffs and denials. Still, he would never be gone, since in being near her even, he felt the quickening, the going forth in him, the release, the knowledge of his own limitation and the magic of the promise as well as the mystery of his own destruction and annihilation. She tortured the open heart of him, even as he turned to her. And she was tortured herself. 
It may have been her will was stronger. She felt with horror as if he tore at the bud of her heart, tore it open like an irreverent, persistent being, like a boy who pulls off a fly's wings, or tears open a bud to see what is in the flower. He tore at her privacy, at her very life. He would destroy her as an immature bud torn open is destroyed. She might open towards him a long while hence, in her dreams, when she was a pure spirit, but now she was not to be violated and ruined. She closed against him fiercely. They climbed together at evening up the high slope to see the sunset. In the finely breathing keen wind they stood and watched the yellow sun sink in crimson and disappear. Then, in the east, the peaks and ridges glowed with living rose, incandescent, like immortal flowers against a brown-purple sky, a miracle, whilst down below the world was a bluish shadow, and above, like an annunciation, hovered a rosy transport in mid-air. To her it was so beautiful, it was a delirium. She wanted to gather the glowing eternal peaks to her breast and die. He saw them, saw they were beautiful, but there arose no clamour in his breast, only a bitterness that was visionary in itself. He wished the peaks were grey and unbeautiful, so that she should not get her support from them. Why did she betray the two of them so terribly in embracing the glow of the evening? Why did she leave him standing there, with the ice-wind blowing through his heart like death, to gratify herself among the rosy snow-tips? "'What does the twilight matter?' he said. Why do you grovel before it? Is it so important to you? She winced in violation and in fury. Go away, she cried, and leave me to it. It is beautiful, beautiful, she sang in strange rhapsodic tones. It is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life. Don't try to come between it and me. Take yourself away, you are out of place. He stood back a little, and left her, standing there, statue-like, transported into the mystic, glowing east. Already the rose was fading. Large white stars were flashing out. He waited. He would forego everything but the yearning. "'That was the most perfect thing I have ever seen,' she said in cold, brutal tones, when at last she turned round to him. "'It amazes me that you should want to destroy it. If you can't see it yourself, why try to debar me?' But in reality he had destroyed it for her. She was straining after a dead effect. "'One day!' he said softly, looking up at her. "'I shall destroy you as you stand looking at the sunset, 
because you are such a liar. There was a soft, voluptuous promise to himself in the words. She was chilled, but arrogant. Ha! she said. I am not afraid of your threats. She denied herself to him. She kept her room rigidly private to herself. But he waited on in a curious patience belonging to his yearning for her. "'In the end,' he said to himself with real voluptuous promise, "'when it reaches that point, I shall do away with her!' And he trembled delicately in every limb in anticipation, as he trembled in his most violent accesses of passionate approach to her, trembling with too much desire. She had a curious sort of allegiance with Lurker all the while now, something insidious and traitorous. Gerald knew of it, but in the unnatural state of patience and the unwillingness to harden himself against her in which he found himself, he took no notice, although her soft kindliness to the other man whom he hated as a noxious insect, made him shiver again with an access of the strange shuddering that came over him repeatedly. He left her alone only when he went skiing, a sport he loved, and which she did not practice. Then he seemed to sweep out of life, to be a projectile into the beyond. And often, when he went away, she talked to the little German sculptor. They had an invariable topic in their art. They were almost of the same ideas. He hated Mestrovich, was not satisfied with the futurists. He liked the West African wooden figures, the Aztec art, Mexican and Central American. He saw the grotesque, and a curious sort of mechanical motion intoxicated him a confusion in nature. They had a curious game with each other, Gudrun and Lurker, of infinite suggestivity, strange and leering, as if they had some esoteric understanding of life, that they alone were initiated into the fearful central secrets that the world dared not know. Their whole correspondence was in a strange, barely comprehensible suggestivity. They kindled themselves at the subtle lust of the Egyptians or the Mexicans. The whole game was one of subtle inter-suggestivity, and they wanted to keep it on the plane of suggestion. From their verbal and physical nuances they got the highest satisfaction in the nerves, from a queer interchange of half-suggested ideas, looks, expressions, and gestures, which were quite intolerable, though incomprehensible, to Gerald. He had no terms in which to think of their commerce. His terms were much too gross. The suggestion of primitive art was their refuge, and the inner mysteries of sensation their object of worship. Art and life were to them the reality 
and the unreality. "'Of course,' said Gudrun, "'life doesn't really matter. It is one's art which is central. What one does in one's life has peu de rapport. It doesn't signify much.' "'Yes, that is so, exactly,' replied the sculptor. "'What one does in one's art, that is the breath of one's being. What one does in one's life, that is a bagatelle for the outsiders to fuss about.' It was curious what a sense of elation and freedom Gudrun found in this communication. She felt established for ever. Of course, Gerald was bagatelle. Love was one of the temporal things in her life, except in so far as she was an artist. She thought of Cleopatra. Cleopatra must have been an artist. She reaped the essential from a man. She harvested the ultimate sensation and threw away the husk. And Mary Stuart, and the great Rachel, panting with her lovers after the theatre, these were the exoteric exponents of love. After all, what was the lover but fuel for the transport of this subtle knowledge, for a female art, the art of pure, perfect knowledge in sensuous understanding? End of the first part of chapter 30 Recording by Ruth Golding